0: Welcome to Hopeful, Not Helpless, the podcast that aims to empower listeners with hope. By listening to this podcast, you will gain the knowledge and resources you need to take action and make a positive impact in your community. Savita Raj currently serves as the Deputy Chief Program Officer for the Girl Scouts of the USA. For almost two decades, she has worked in youth-serving nonprofits that engage students in STEM. Hello, welcome on. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to me today.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be talking to you as well.
0: So can you please tell me a little bit about the work you do, maybe just a general overview?
1: Sure, um, I I am an engineer by training, so I did go to school to be, be an engineer and I worked in that field for a little bit, but my the majority of my career, almost 20 years now, I have worked in the nonprofit world, uh, particularly in um, youth education. So that's primarily been where I have worked for, for yeah, 20 years now. Um, what do I do particularly is, uh, For almost the past 18 years, I've been focused on getting uh, young people who typically would not be thinking about college and careers in science, technology, engineering, and math, STEM, um, those fields, getting uh, students excited about opportunities in those fields. And now in my most recent role, it is a broader set of uh, broader portfolios, so to say. Um, And it's more about getting uh, young people interested, especially girls interested in uh, pursuing their higher education, thinking about non-traditional careers, and um, being leaders in their communities. So that's what I do. now.
0: Wow, thank you so much for sharing that. So why did you get started with this work? It's funny and
1: interesting when, um, uh, what, almost 15 years ago or when when I first started, it started because I was um, volunteering at my daughter's elementary school. And uh, I started noticing that the little girls who were really, really good at whatever they wanted to do were already thinking about how they did not want to go into science or engineering. It was for boys, it was not for them. That was a very eye-opening conversation for me when I saw these little girls in second grade, first grade, already self-selecting themselves out of this field. So I was thinking about that as such a strange thing because um, where I grew up in India, of course, uh, though it was a much more traditional place and more traditional environment, more conservative environment, I don't think any of us growing up ever felt that we couldn't pursue something or we couldn't study something. If we wanted to study science, fine. If we wanted to go into engineering, fine. If, you know, We grew up in that time of uh, opportunity for all of us. Mm-hmm. And here I was supposedly in a much more advanced country. And here were the little girls who were self-selecting out and not even thinking about how they could be continuing in science and engineering. And at the same time, I saw an ad in the paper that said, wanted a part-time person who knows how to use computers and cameras. And I could do both, you know, computers and cameras, check, check. So I signed up and it turned out to be um, a job leading the STEM center for the Girl Scouts of Central Texas, which is this local Girl Scout Council. And I absolutely fell in love with my job. and loved everything that I could do. I learned everything about curriculum writing, fundraising, teaching, all the things. And every single thing was fun. So I just continued. And that's how I got started.
0: Wow, that's an amazing story. So you mentioned that you've been involved in a couple of nonprofits. Uh Would you be able to tell us a little bit about each one, maybe, and what you sure.
1: So, like I said, I started with the Girl Scouts of Central Texas back in the day, and that was a job job, right? As a, it was a part-time person and then I ended up working full-time and um, it was it was a lot of fun. It was very meaningful. Um, we, at that time, I was able to start the first ever all Girl Scout robotics teams in the country. I was able to raise money for that and we started that. I was able to start, um, actually in collaboration with the Chabot Space and Science Center out in California in Oakland, they have a wonderful program called Tech Bridge Girls. So I was able to come there for a, a meeting and just learned about the kind of work they were doing. Just I was so impressed, I was able to bring that back to Texas. And uh, I'll tell you a funny story about that. So we we're able to start a program for girls who typically um, wouldn't even think about science and engineering. So First generation college students, most likely, first generation to think about engineering. So, we started a program for science and engineering for them. And fast forward 10 years, I had a UT student apply to be an intern. And she was a graduate of that program. Wow. And she recognized me. So, it was like a full circle moment. It was so wonderful. So, Um, So that was my first job, Uh, so getting girls into science and engineering, then after about seven, eight years doing that, I moved to a nonprofit called the Texas Alliance for Minorities in Engineering. I worked there for 10 years as the CEO or the executive director, and that was, again, a lot of fun, getting kids who traditionally, you know, weren't even thinking of science and engineering to be thinking about not just going to college, but going to the top colleges and coming up with these interesting, fun programs to get them excited and to keep them excited and then to prepare them for success, all of which are important. Mm -hmm. And then about a year and a half ago, I got a call from the CEO of Girl Scouts of the USA. um, And she was asking if I would be interested in leading a a program where we we would try to get about two and a half million girls into STEM over the next five years. So that was like another challenge. And so I said, yes. And so that's how I ended up with my current job. So um, I'm doing more than that now, but uh, that's basically all the different places that I've worked.
0: That's such a great story and journey. I love how you're able to notice this need so early on and then find ways to address that need or address that issue of girls not thinking that they can go into these fields. That is so amazing and inspiring.
1: Thank you. I think it comes from being an engineer, right? And if you have a certain mindset, um, I tell my students a lot of times, if you would think back to say 1995 or 1997, you know, pre-Google, pre-YouTube, pre-internet browser world, There were students graduating from college at that time who thought they were fully prepared for whatever they were studying. But then Netscape browser came out. This young man uh, out at UIUC, University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, created the first browser and the whole world changed. And for those students who were graduating at that time, what they studied was almost irrelevant to what the future was going to be. And who are the ones who are successful? The ones who could creatively think, problem solve, and take whatever the world threw at them and make that an advantage. And so that way of thinking is important and the fields that help you think that way are critically important. So it doesn't matter what you study. If you can think critically and if you can think creatively, that's very important. And whatever you can do to build that muscle that sets you up for success because we don't know what the jobs of the future are going to be and what we'll all be doing. So it's going to be that that's the key piece to keep in mind that that adaptability and figuring out how things change.
0: That also just reminds me of the current situation and how much things have changed since even the beginning of last year in 2020 Mm -hmm. and how people have really had to adapt and think on their feet and find ways to continue to do things and find new ways to do things. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that also were heavily relying on technology. Yes. We also had to adapt. So that is incredible. Yeah.
1: The good thing about this past year in a certain sense, I mean, there's terrible things, of course, but it forced the entire world to reckon with the digital divide and to figure out that we need, all of us needed to be connected and it wasn't just this part of the world or this part of this country or this part of this state that had to grapple with it. It was the entire world. So I think it has it has made it possible for us to begin thinking of equity in the digital space in a very different way. And I think that's going to have a lot uh, long-ranging um, impact and significant consequences as we move forward. Totally.
0: So it seems like equity is Mm -hmm. a huge issue that you're passionate about. Mm -hmm. So, when it comes to the digital divide, how can anyone who's listening take action to close that gap? That's such an interesting question because
1: I think to uh, really bridge the digital divide, We need the communities, the local governments, the state government, the federal government to take action. It it is isn't. like getting electricity or water or gas delivered to your house. It's similar to that. Every person should be able to access the internet as easily. And that's not something that an individual can do or make happen. But what an individual can do or make happen is advocate for that and make sure that the resources are appropriately spent. So uh, one of the things I'd worked on many years ago was um, a grant called the BTOPS grant. It's broadband technology something. And it's a federal grant and it was about $11 million that came to the state of Texas. And I was one of the people who wrote the grant and we were able to get that money. And what we used that money for was primarily to get internet access in remote library locations. So thinking about using uh, or leveraging your existing physical infrastructure, there are libraries in every community, every single person has access to the library. So how can you then reimagine a library, a local elementary school? How can you reimagine what exists right now in every community within America? How do you leverage those physical spaces to then also bridge this digital divide, like provide Wi-Fi beamed out from those locations, have school buses go to areas where there is no Wi-Fi, for example. So innovative solutions that individuals can think about, but which can be implemented by the local government, state government, federal government. That's, that's the key, and advocacy around that. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you for sharing. I definitely think that's a huge issue that I also care about and mm-hmm. definitely, we've seen that it's so important and technology is such a crucial part of our society. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. So my next question is how have you seen yourself or the organizations you've been part of making a positive impact?
1: I've just been so fortunate to have had this, these jobs over these years. Um, And I'm always very uh, conscious that it's not an individual, but it is an an organization, a group of people, a community that makes a difference. Mm -hmm. Um, Just yesterday, I was talking to one of our teachers that I'd worked with for many, many years, an immigrant herself, who came to a border town in uh, between Texas and Mexico, right along the Rio Grande Valley, really poor town with which is about five hours to the nearest big grocery store, you know, so that's how vast and remote Texas is. And this is right at the edge of the border by Big Bend National Park. It's five hours to the nearest Walmart, many, many hours to get anywhere, right? But this is um, a community that is interested in education. Everybody is interested in education, the school district is interested. So this particular teacher, the physics teacher came in and she um, brought up rocketry with the kids. The kids loved it. The high school just absolutely was really interested. So they drove eight hours to the nearest university town, Texas Tech University in Lubbock. And they went to a rocketry competition. Then they walked around the field after the competition, picked up all the leftover supplies that the other wealthier schools had left behind, brought it back and the students figured out how to build their own rockets, how to compete in a rocketry competition. They would sell cabritos, goats, um, as uh, to raise money for their rocketry team. And I would buy the goats not to eat them, but to save them from being eaten. But you know, you did what you could and we raised money statewide. We supported them with whatever we could. And that team consistently has placed in the top 100 nationally. Mm. They also got to go to see uh, President Obama at the first ever White House science fair, we were able to get them there. So Those are the kinds of things that we can do and make possible when the community believes in um, in the value of something. And I was just talking to this teacher, as I said, and um, all the girls on that team, one's, uh, one's at Purdue, one, uh, you know, studying engineering, one's a master's in chemicals. Uh, she started out in chemical engineering The uh, and and she's now uh, she didn't do engineering, she did the, what is it called, Master of Science in Chemistry. Uh, every single person in, in, those, in that original team that went to see President Obama in the White House, every single one of them is either a scientist or an engineer, first in the family to go to college, first in the family to learn English, because they all had just come over the border or had immigrated from somewhere, didn't know uh, any, any English. So they all learned English, did this. No money, so you know we were able to support them with scholarships, mentoring, help them stay in college. So this whole infrastructure has to be built out to make sure that these students succeed. Because you know talent is distributed widely and evenly, opportunity is not. So how do you change that? Everyone has talent. I, I, there's nothing that says one community's got that or got a stranglehold on that. So how do you then make opportunity available? That's that's the question.
0: Mm-hmm. I really like how you brought up that it's not just an individual having an impact. It needs to be a whole community. Mm-hmm. It needs to come together. So what would you say to people in a community where there is a need who think that it's not their problem?
1: Yeah, that's the thing, right? It is everyone's problem because every single one of us is interconnected. Every single one of our um, decisions, choices have consequences beyond ourselves. Um, And therefore, the more we begin thinking of ourselves as an interconnected system, um, going back to some of the uh, earlier ways of thinking, right? If you think of of Aboriginal people or people in communities that were closely connected to the natural land and those folks, they understood instinctively and at a visceral level, how everything is interconnected. And living in cities and communities um, that are much more urbanized, we kind of may have lost that a little bit, but going back to that, becoming aware that we are all interconnected and we need to lift each other up Mm -hmm. um, in whatever way. And um, thinking about ourselves as a village, that needs to come together, um, that's that's key. Mm. So, um, th- that's how I would approach it. What's in it for you? How can it make your life better? You start there, and then you can think about um, making that possible for everyone.
0: I love that. So kind of moving on to the next portion of the interview that comes out of the podcast's name, Hopeful Not okay. help. Yeah. You ever felt helpless and did you take any specific action to overcome that feeling and take action?
1: Yeah, um, certainly. You do feel helpless lots of times when things are beyond your control uh, or you feel like things are beyond your control. But um, I guess my, uh, I've always been a hopeful person. So that helps, right? So I'm always thinking of how can I. How can I make a change here? Um, I think the darkest days were right after 9-11 when uh, people who looked like us were targeted, where there was so much distrust, there was so much um, violence against people who looked like us and those were difficult days. And uh, that's that's probably when I felt the most hopeless. Um, Back then. And now, when in the most recent year I felt hopeless, when I've seen the murder of George Floyd, when I've, you know, um, Breonna Taylor, Ahmad Abri, every single one of those has felt like a gut punch and has felt like, how are we going to move forward when all of this continues to happen, right? But then I look at the long arc of history, I look at data like what is, um, Hans Rosling, he's he's a data scientist who looks at the data of how humankind is changing across generations. Mm -hmm. And the long arc of history bends towards justice as Martin Luther King said, but you see it in the data. We are definitely at a better place. So I think of it as a graph that may have had a small dip right now, but overall it's improving. So I'm hopeful. And then I look at young people like you you, you are doing such amazing work already, thinking, being thoughtful, being connected, being involved, you give me hope. So you are the ones that give me hope.
0: So kind of going off of that, what, okay. is, what does hope mean to you?
1: Um, equity bottom line, that everybody has equal access to opportunity. That's that's Mm -hmm. very important. And to me, that's hope. Like, how do we move that way? And the recent elections, for example, in Georgia gave me hope. And now what is happening in Georgia feels hopeless. But then I think the reaction is going to be much stronger. And maybe because of the most recent um, bill that the governor signed, there's going to be so much of a pushback that we'll end up in a much better place than we were even at the time of this last Senate election. So that's what I hope is going to happen. And that's my hope, yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: So how would you advise people who are looking at things, the hopeless things going on in the news and feeling helpless that they can't do anything to help or make things better? How would you advise them to find hope and find ways to combat those issues?
1: You got to start small. So you can't boil the ocean as the saying goes, right? You can't try to boil the ocean. You can't try to make it right for everyone, but you can make it right in your immediate community. So for example, right now, all of the Asian hate, hate against the Asian community that that you see, the AAPI Mm -hmm. um, attacks on our, our communities. Um, you hear a joke that talks about a person who looks Asian or is Asian or something like that. You can counter that. You, you know, the little things that you can do. You can stand up to the smallest things that you can. Maybe you put up a sign that says all are welcome here. The small things that you can do that, that are within your control that make you feel like you're not going too far outside your comfort zone, but you're at least taking one step. But taking another step the next day, not stopping there, right? That's the key. You can't just have a Twitter activism, post something, and be done with it. But you've got to do one more step. So just slowly taking it one step at a time. I'm hopeful that that will help, and then trying different things. So you know, for me, it's so stay, equity in education is my primary focus, but I am so interested and support the Fuji coalitions. I support sustainable food and urban farming, sustainable buildings and passive architecture, you know, passive solar uh, architecture, things like that. All of which are like connected, but I am not farther along in those fields as, as I am in this, but all those things um, help me survive and stay hopeful and just being so grateful that we have family and friends and food and roof over our heads. All of this, every single thing helps me be grateful and that helps me be hopeful as well. And I'd say for others, maybe that's a way to start. <laughs>
0: yeah. That's great advice, thank you. And that pretty much wraps it up. So okay. thank you so much again for making the time to talk to me. Thank you for doing the work that you're doing. It's really important. And I'm so grateful to have gotten the chance to talk to you. You gave me hope. It's
1: been so lovely to talk to you.
0: That's it for this episode of Hopeful, Not Helpless. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. And remember, you can never be helpless when you have hope.